Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we pause for just a few moments before we begin to read and consider what the Holy Spirit has given to us in your word for our lives this evening and this week. We pause to tell you again that you are worthy to receive all glory, honor, and praise, not only from our lips, but more importantly, from our lives. You are sovereign. There's nothing too difficult for you. That means whatever difficulty we may face pales in the light of your power and ability. And so, Lord, we come as your family, your children, resting in your ability tonight. Lord, I pray that as we go through this chapter and we uncover these principles, that we would learn, for Paul said concerning the Old Testament, all of these things were written before for our learning, for our admonition. And your spirit has preserved them for us tonight. They are our promises, our principles. And so, Lord, show us what they mean to our lives as individuals and as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I read that Mike Tyson built a $12,000 pigeon coop in Phoenix, Arizona. Did you hear about this? And uh, $12,000, because it has to be air-conditioned, it is Phoenix, of course, 100 square feet, nice pigeon coop where he would keep between 70 and 100 pigeons. The city put a halt to it because a neighbor complained. So he went before the city and told his story, and he finally was able to build this $12,000 pigeon coop. Tyson was raised in New York City where he gained a reputation for fighting because he pummeled somebody who killed one of his pet pigeons when he was younger. And he went on record as saying, I don't know what anyone has against pigeons. They haven't done nothing to no one. Close quote. So he built his pigeon coop, a hundred pigeons. Now, I know that story sounds for the birds, but it's true, seriously. And that was a foul joke. I understand that too, but uh, I, I'm taking you back to Jerusalem to several hundred years before Christ, the time of Nehemiah, when there were more birds in Jerusalem than people. There was a problem that they were facing in Jerusalem. They couldn't get enough people to live within the city walls. It was a problem area. Now, chapter 11 has a lot of names in it, and we're not going to read all of the names. The first few verses sort of have the bulk of uh, the information. The rest are names, and then it closes off with a few places. But let me just tell you the problem, and then we'll refer back to a verse of Scripture that you'll remember, and we'll tie in all of these principles together. Very few people had come back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and inhabit it. Most of them stayed back in Babylon. So after 70 years of captivity, only about 50,000 in total in all of the um, waves of people that returned came back to rebuild and restore the city. 
So they had an opposite problem that many cities face. Most cities have to control population. There's a population explosion. Their challenge is how do we get population in the city? Now, today, there really is a problem with population. In a place like California, we wonder, how do we manage the influx of people who want to live here? And you can see the problem, not just locally, but internationally. According to statistics, most people have traditionally lived in rural areas until most recently. By the year 1800, only 3% of the world was living in urban areas. The rest were sprawled out, out in the farmlands and across the uh, countrysides of the world. By 1900, 14% of the world's population lived in cities. By 1950, 30%. By the year 2000, 47%. And in developed nations, 76% of them live in cities and the rest out in the countryside. So there has been a shift to uh, this urban sprawl. And our issue is how do we control it? The problem Nehemiah has is I need people in this city. I can't get enough people to cooperate and live within the city of Jerusalem. So look at verse 1 and then we'll uh, read a few verses down and we'll go back. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Stop there and go back to chapter 7 with me for just a moment. Nehemiah chapter 7, where we find a massive relocation of the people in Jerusalem, starting in chapter 7 and continuing on in chapter 11. Chapter 7, then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large, and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, and we have a list of the names. So this is where it all began. We have all of these buildings a nice restored wall. It's safe from our enemies. There's only one thing we lack, people. And so they're going to relocate people living in towns around Jerusalem in Judea who had come back to their father's heritage and conscript them, draft them to come into the city. 
Now, what happens between chapter 7 and 11, if you're wondering why this gap, why are we getting back to it? Because of the seventh month. The seventh month was that great month of festivals. There was the Day of Atonement. There was the Feast of Tabernacles. And as Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders of the people got everybody together out by the water gate and started reading Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, a great remorse fell over the hearts of the people. And there was a national repentance, if you remember. And the leader said, now isn't the time to mourn. It's the time to rejoice for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they had a big party. But then they got back once again to fasting and praying and hearing the word of God. So now they have come back full circle to chapter 11. And they deal with this issue of people. Now, I sort of want you to follow the uh, train of thought here. The first part of the book of Nehemiah is all about the buildings. That's the emphasis, the wall, the structures, the safety, the physical plant of Jerusalem. Let's fortify it. Let's finish the walls. Let's get all of the people involved so we can get the project completed. That is not the emphasis of the second part of the book. The second part of the book is all about the people, not the buildings. It's first the property, but now it's the people. The people in relationship to God, the people in relationship to the covenant of God, the people in relationship to the consecration of their hearts to God, And that's what this emphasis is all about. And it's a good emphasis. It's important that we remember the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That the most important part of church life isn't the church building. It's the church people who compromise the elect, the called out ones of God. And so it's a proper emphasis. Hey, the building's out of the way. Forget it now. Let's get down to business. And so this is the business and the emphasis of this section. Now, back in chapter 11, it says that the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. Well, they should. It's the capital city. But we need people in it. We need an infrastructure. We need trade. We need somebody to defend this city. Not only that, we need to be a witness to those antagonistic Gentile nations who are saying, you'll never finish this city. Your God isn't strong enough to pull this off. Your God has abandoned you. Nehemiah knows this is a problem. The leaders know this is a problem. They're in Jerusalem. So they do something interesting. Whereas in the previous chapter, they were giving tithes of their finances to the temple, tithes of their increase of the flocks and their first fruits. Now they're going to actually tithe human beings. They're giving a tenth of the population of Judah to the city of Jerusalem. They'll cast lots and they'll figure out who out of these people living around Judah should be living in Jerusalem. And so all the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. Notice what Jerusalem is called in verse 1. It's the first time in the Bible Jerusalem is given the term the holy city. 
And so because it's the first time, it's sort of that rule of first mention, we need to note it. It's called the holy city. Here, and in verse 18, it's called the holy city. And ten times altogether in scripture, it is called the holy city. The Hebrew word for holy is kodesh. And kodesh is a word that means dedicated or consecrated or set apart. It's very similar to the New Testament term in Greek, hagias. We get the word saint from it. It, Or holy, it means to be set apart. And because Jerusalem was the only place, Deuteronomy chapter 12, tells us God would set his name there as a testimony. God would have pleasure to dwell among his people and his name should be lifted up in Jerusalem. It was to be called the holy city. And so here's the first time uh, it is mentioned that it is called that in the Bible. If you've been to Jerusalem, you're going to wonder about this title. If you've been to Jerusalem on a tour and you look at this, you go, look at, I've been there and it's anything but a holy city. As the uh, buyers or as the sellers try to gouge you and charge you too much money for those stupid little brass menorahs that are worth just 50 cents and they want 20 bucks for it. Or some of the names they call tourists as you walk down the streets of the old city, you go, holy city, holy cow, it's not a holy city. But it's designated as such, as I said, because that's the place God has chosen to manifest himself, and one day it will ultimately be the holy city. So it's a great nickname. You know, I love the fact that towns have nicknames. New York is called the Big Apple. Los Angeles, the City of Angels. What is Chicago? The Windy City. And towns have nicknames. In Jerusalem, uh, they call it the City of God. They call it the City of the Book. The Bible calls it not only the holy city, but the psalmist calls it the city of the great king. Jerusalem is a name that means the city of peace, even though it has seen probably more wars than any other city on earth. It's given that name. The rabbis in the Talmud have interesting statements about the city of Jerusalem. They say that God has given ten measures of beauty to the world. Nine reside in Jerusalem. And one measure of beauty is distributed to the rest of the world. And so the sages will say, he who has not seen Jerusalem has never seen a beautiful city. The ancient rabbis go on to say that God gave to the world ten measures of wisdom. Nine ended up in Jerusalem. One was distributed to the rest of the world. They go on to say ten measures of suffering were given to the world. Nine were given to Jerusalem. And one was given to the rest of the world. Or they'll say, whoever breathes the air of Jerusalem will be a wiser man. So every time we go to Israel, I love to stand on the Mount of Olives and go, oh, yeah. Just in case it'll work. But I love standing on the Mount of Olives and looking over the city of Jerusalem and thinking about the history of it as well as the prophecy of it. 
imagining the wars that were fought there, imagining Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. It's the city God has chosen in the past and in the future. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the world biblically. Ezekiel chapter 5, God says, I have set Jerusalem in the middle or in the midst of all of the nations round about her. So that in the Bible, when you read of north, south, east, and west, it's always north of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, west of Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem. It's the geographic center of the world biblically. It's also the salvation center of the world spiritually. There's only one place God ever secured the salvation of mankind, and that is just outside the city gates on the hill called Golgotha in Jerusalem. When the Samaritan woman was, in her mind, arguing with Jesus about the right place to worship, and she said, you Jews say Jerusalem is the only place to worship, but our fathers worship here in this mountain in Samaria, Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So it's the geographic center of the world biblically. It's the salvation center of the world spiritually. It's the storm center of the world prophetically. Every statesman around the world knows that what goes on in the Middle East is of greater importance than what goes on in Los Angeles. What goes on, especially in Jerusalem, is to be more attention given to than what goes on in Rio de Janeiro or uh, in Egypt uh, or in uh, uh, Southeast Asia or Europe. It's the tinderbox, and they know it. And the Bible prophetically says that. God says that he will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the countries around, the whole world. But fourth and finally, Jerusalem is the glory center of the world ultimately. And, and all of that I like to think about when I'm looking at Jerusalem. There it is, the holy city. God's going to put his glory there. The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, when Jesus returns. You see, in Jerusalem, there is a kingless throne. It's the throne of David. It has been unoccupied for over 2,500 years now. And the promise is that somebody from the line of David would ultimately restore that lineage and reign over Jerusalem, Israel, and the world from Mount Zion. So in Jerusalem today, there is a kingless throne in heaven today, there's a throneless king. Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, but when you get the kingless throne and the throneless king together, you'll have glory. You'll have Jesus, the Messiah, returning from heaven to the earth, sitting on the throne of David, and for a thousand years, ruling and reigning in it. And you and I will see it. And if you've never been to Israel before, don't worry, a free trip is coming your way. You'll go there at least once a year. Verse 2. We're making progress. 
And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. There was sort of a twofold plan. They knew they had to institute a draft to conscript people out of the towns of Judah, one out of every ten, to leave their heritage and go to Jerusalem. But they opened it up for volunteers. And some people, without being drafted, said, I'll do it, I'll go. And this was the volunteer force, and the rest of the people blessed them. That is, they encouraged them. God's blessing be upon you. We love what you're doing. And always in the work of God, volunteer forces are at the heart. I believe, as I've told you before, I believe in layman's liberation. I don't believe that the ministry is to be carried on by professional clergy. You're about as professional as I am. I just went to college for uh, the medical field and then studied some theology much later on once I found myself in the ministry. But just those who will volunteer and say, like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. That was a response to the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he was the first to volunteer. He didn't say, here I am, Lord, send him. But Lord, if there's a need, send me. Why? Because, as the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that the Lord might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal, dedicated, consecrated to him. In other words, like Isaiah, if you were to say, Lord, I'd like to be used by you. Here I am over here. Send me. God will do it. You say, well, I don't know if he'll do it. Maybe I'm not qualified. Whoever the Lord calls, he qualifies. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those that he calls. And so these volunteers just felt called, and they said, we'll do it. And the rest of the people blessed them for doing it. Now, there's a principle. It's a New Testament principle, not just an Old Testament principle. All of us have an enormous opportunity. I don't know exactly what it is individually for you, but the opportunity is this, to wake up every day and to look also at the rest of your life and say, what adventure does the Lord want to take me on today or in my life? Where could I go? What could I do for his glory? And the principle is found in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, or the most reasonable, wisest thing you could do. Here's my body, Lord. Use it for your glory. What do you want to do? You have a vessel right here to use for your glory. And the Bible is chock full of people who have willingly volunteered and yielded their bodies for God's service. Moses. Perhaps the most unlikely guy to be an articulate spokesperson for the Lord because he stuttered. In fact, when the Lord called him, he said, Lord, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. That means I stutter. And you're asking me to go before the Pharaoh and talk? I can't. God said, perfect, I'll send you. Because I've called you and I'm going to qualify you. And so he 
yielded his body and God used his mouth to speak to Pharaoh and then to clearly articulate the law of God from Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. That's example number one. Example number two, young David yielded his body to God and God used his hands to war, to use a sling to kill off the enemies of the flock, to train him to be a good shepherd later on for the people of Israel. Or Paul, how God used his feet to take the gospel all over the Near East, all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, volunteering, Lord, here I am, send me. So, tonight, as we close, we're going to do that. Of course, we have to finish the chapter first. We're not done yet. But we're going to say, Lord, here's my body. Use it for your glory tomorrow, this week. You know, Aaron, the high priest, and his sons after him were called to consecrate their bodies to God. And they did an interesting kind of a ritual. They were to take blood of a sacrifice and smear it on the right ear of the high priest, the thumb of the right hand of the high priest, and the big toe of the right foot. It was very symbolic. May my ear hear your voice. May my hands do your will, and may my feet walk in your ways. A consecration of the body to hear the voice of God and to do the will of God voluntarily from the heart. So the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, they took the people together and cast lots. Now, you, you might read that and go, that doesn't sound very holy. <laughs> it doesn't sound very spiritually. It's sort of like biblical dice rolling. You know, we're going to cast lots and perform the will of God. Well, there's an interesting scripture. You may want to write it in the margin of your Bible here. Proverbs 16:33. That says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they had this interesting method of discerning the will of God that God promised to oversee in this case and select just the right person out of the ten in that draft to go to Jerusalem. Now these are the heads, verse 3, of the province who dwell in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Now, just for a footnote, do you remember who the Nethanim were? We explained it a couple times. These are the temple servants, the water carriers, the woodcutters. At one time, they were the Gibeonites who pulled a snow job on Joshua and the children of Israel as they were coming in to conquer the land. And now they were told from that point on that they were going to be these servants. They are the Nethanim, the temple servants. Now, there's a list in this chapter. And there have been several lists. And I bet if you're like me, you look at these names and you think, why am I reading all of these names? Let's just skip over these names. Why, why does, and you found out Nehemiah <laughs> includes lots of lists of people. Chapter three, there's a whole list of those who were on the different portions of the wall and what they did. Chapter seven is a list of those people who came back under Zerubbabel in the first return of the captivity. Then there was the list of those people who made the covenant, 84 names in chapter 10. And now another list of those people who were brought in. 
and, and I think it's to acknowledge and to show an appreciation to those people who took that step of faith to do it. Also in Jerusalem, verse 4, dwelt certain of the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin. The children of Judah, there's a whole bunch of names that I'm going to... Listen, if you're uh, having a baby and you want a biblical name, you've got a lot of fodder to choose from here. I'm going to take you down to uh, verse 6. All of the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem, 468 valiant men or courageous, brave men. That means of the tribe of Judah, there's the number given, 468. Now, I want to state the obvious once again because I want you to get this point. These are just a list of the people who showed up to live in Jerusalem. And altogether, there's about 3,000 plus people who did that. That's all. Never underestimate the value of just showing up. Of just presenting your physical body in the place where you feel God has called you to be. And so they just showed up. They didn't perform any dramatic service for God. But they were just there being God's people. And it was a step of faith. They were serving God. They were serving their nation. They were serving their posterity, their descendants who would eventually come and inhabit that land. All by a simple step of faith of being. You know, there's something called the ministry of presence. And if you're a chaplain or if you've worked with people who are suffering or in need, just you physically being there encourages them. You don't have to come up with great pearls of wisdom and here, I'd like to teach you for an hour the book of Leviticus in your suffering. They don't want to hear it, but they do want to see you and as God's representative to feel your presence and to be there if something is needed. So never underestimate just being God's people in the place where God has called you. And so the list goes on. 468 of Judah, verse 8, those of Benjamin, 928. Verse 10, priests of the priest, Jediah, the son of Jerib and Yakin, Sariah, and a whole list of other names. But look at verse uh, 11. The son of Ahitub was the leader of the house of God, that is, the assistant to the high priest. Their brethren who did the work of the house were 822. Adiah, the son of Jeroham. The son of, and I'm trying to pronounce it that we would pronounce, the Hebrew pronunciation would be much different. Uh, the rest of these guys. And then down in verse um, uh, 14. And their brethren, mighty men of valor, who were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. What this part of the list is, is three divisions of the priesthood. That was overseen by Zabdiel, the man who is mentioned, this man of valor. Also of the Levites, verse 15. Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrikam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Buni, Shabbethai, and Jazabad of the heads of the Levites, and the oversight of the business outside the house of God. 
And Mataniah, the son of Milcah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was, and you remember him, writer of some of the Psalms, who was the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. And Bakbukia, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shamuah, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. All of the Levites in the holy city were 284. Now, what we saw or read just described, at least in part, was the giving of thanks that was done at the morning and the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem. You remember there was a morning sacrifice, and it was performed with psalms and thanksgiving and prayers, ritual, and there was an evening sacrifice. The way it was normally performed is that it was done sort of in chanting form, a cantor, somebody who would sing and chant responsibly, he would sing one part, the rest of the Levitical choir would sing the other parts, and it was accompanied by musical instruments. And you notice, even in this list of the bare necessities in Jerusalem, there's a lot of emphasis on music, in praise, and in worship. So they're listed. And uh, all the Levites, as we saw, verse 18, in the holy city, there's the second mention in the Bible of the term holy city, were 284. So there's a huge variety of people, volunteers and drafted, needed for a number of activities. Guards were needed around the temple of God because the tithes and the offerings that we saw in the previous chapter were always kept within the temple. And because of the sinfulness of man, that money need to be guarded. They need to be good stewards of it. Moreover, the gatekeepers and their names are given. And the rest of Israel, verse 20, the rest of the priests and Levites were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his own inheritance. So we have a great list of different people from different tribes with a variety of activities. So is the church. The church even here, isn't comprised of one guy on a stool doing all the work by teaching a Bible study or a worship team and a preacher. It's done by a whole team of people, many, most of whom you don't see, parking lot crews, teachers in the classrooms, sound engineer, people behind the glass running the Internet who are servants of the Lord whom you don't see but are very, very important. Verse 21, but the Nethanim, that's those water carriers and woodcutters, dwelt in Ophel, and Ziha and Gishpah were over the Nethanim. Now, I'm going to explain that verse to you. I wish I had a slide to show you or a video. One day we'll get that together. The Ophel is a place, if you've been to Jerusalem with us, you'll remember is in the area of the city of David. You know, when you're looking from the Mount of Olives at the city of Jerusalem, and you look to your left side as you're looking down, there's the big corner, which is the pinnacle of the temple. Well, there's a road, and if you take that road just around there, and you look to your right, you see the steps of the temple going up from ancient days. From that area, which is today outside the city walls, And down through the city of David, that one little hill area was called the Ophel. At the time of Nehemiah, it was inside the city walls. It was close to the water gate where they had that big preach-a-thon a a few chapters ago and the revival at the water gate. 
But today it's outside the city walls, and these woodcutters and water carriers dwelt there. Also, verse 22, the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi. So maybe that's where they get the 9 millimeter from that is so popular in Israel, the Israeli Uzi. The son of Bani, the son of Hashbiah, and the son of Mataniah, the son of Mekah, the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. Again, an emphasis upon the music, the worship, the song. Here's the bare necessities, the minimum population drafted into Jerusalem. Got to have the singers. So important. I read an interesting article from a London newspaper. It was posted in Reuters and then put in a London paper because the research was done in London. They discovered that people who sing along to music in their car concentrate more when they drive. Now, if you talk on cell phones, that's a distraction. But if you have the music cranked and you sing along, it does something to you physically and mentally and enables you to concentrate more while you're kind of just singing along, taking the stress off, they say. So music was always important, spiritually as well as socially. Verse 23, for it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers a quota day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, the son of the children of Zerah, the sons of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. Now, this guy mentioned in uh, verse 24 was evidently some sort of political liaison between the government in Persia and this new colony in Jerusalem. You'll remember that it was King Artaxerxes of Persia that told Nehemiah to go back and perform these duties. When Artaxerxes gave the command, and and this is written about, if you want to read later on in uh, the book of Ezra, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 8, King Artaxerxes said, let money be given for these people to return. Make sure it's enough money for them to start their sacrificial system up again so that while they're there sacrificing to their God, they can pray for me, the king, and for the king's family. Now, he was paying for all of this and basically saying, here's the deal. I'll pay. You pray. I'm going to make sure I pay and get this funded because I want you who trust in God so much, Nehemiah, that you're willing to sacrifice your position in my court and go 500 miles. I want to make sure that you pray to this God for me and for my family. I'll pay, you pray. The city of Jerusalem was a holy city, but it was a hard city to live in. It took a missionary spirit for people to say, I'll go, I'll live there. Imagine if we were to say on a Sunday morning at both services, we're going to say, tell you what, 10% of our church, we're asking you to get up and go, leave Orange County, change states, and we're going to start something new for the Lord in another place. So we want one out of every 10 to get up and go. That kind of dislocation would be difficult. It was a very hard, it required a missionary spirit. Nehemiah had it, went from Persia to Jerusalem, started a new work, 
Now these people are called upon. It's all funded by the king, King Artaxerxes. Now, verse 25 on down is a list of the uh, uh, cities around where the people came from. Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And tribal allotments were given and then passed down from family to family. So that if you own land, or let's say your dad and granddad own land, maybe they died in the captivity. Maybe they didn't make it back, but you make it back. So you naturally want to settle in the land that is yours. It belongs to you and your family. You have the title deed. Not everybody could do that. Nine out of ten could. One out of ten stayed in Jerusalem. And these were the cities that were involved outside Jerusalem. For the villages, with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kiriath Arba, which is nearby, and its villages, Debon and its villages, Jacob Zael and its villages, Jeshua, and the rest of them all the way down, all the way up north, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, in verse 34, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, which is... The modern airport is out toward the Mediterranean Sea. Ono, that's where Yoko's from. And the Valley of the Craftsmen. Of course, that's not true. Some of the Judean divisions of the Levites were in Benjamin. Okay, so we finished the chapter. A long list. Nehemiah is full of those things. We've looked at the city of Jerusalem back then. And in just a moment, I want you to consider what Jerusalem's going to be like, even if you never go on a tour, one day in the future. Now, remember, in Nehemiah's day, he had to force people to live there. Land was cheap. You could get a house for free. You just have to say, I'll volunteer, I'll go. Great, live here. Today in Israel, land is quite expensive. I was reading the Jerusalem Post. One apartment in Jerusalem recently sold for 535000 U.S. dollars. They considered it a great deal. Now, if you're from Orange County, you might say, yes, so what? But from the rest of the country, them's high prices. And one apartment I remember driving by a few months back over by the Jaffa Gate, one apartment overlooking the Jaffa Gate was near $2 million. Expensive. Back then, you couldn't give land away. You had to give land away. Today, it's quite costly because of the influx of people from all over the world, the Jews resettling the land, according to Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 31 and 32, Ezekiel, etc. But let's just leave this, since this is ancient stuff to us, and let me introduce you to your new home. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21? And this is where we'll close this evening. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away also. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. You are now getting a glimpse into your future your eternity, and your future, your eternity, will be a social one. If you think, well, I can't wait to get to heaven, I'm going to look for my little quiet corner, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. It's going to be very active, lots of great, loud, by the way, worship music going on. You go, I hate loud music, God will give you new ears. You'll have a redeemed body, you'll be able to handle it. The rest of us are going to love it. It's going to be a very social and interactive community. There has never been a community unmarred by sin. There has never been a city on earth that has been perfect. Governments are corrupt. People are corrupt. The new Jerusalem will be the only city coming down from heaven, from God, and come down toward the new earth. And it seems to stop not touching the earth, but become I know it's going to sound weird, like a square-shaped satellite city just hovering over the new earth. It's wild. Verse 11, having the glory of God. What a great thought. Certain towns may be known for its famous local heroes. You know, we're in California, and we we don't think much of it, but you get people from out of state, and they think of California as, oh, yeah, Arnold's state. Arnold's California. Or they'll think of some city that has a famous resident, and you're going to be living in God's town. It has the glory of God in it. And then he describes the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, modern jasper is opaque. Ancient jasper was different. It is describing a stone clear as crystal, and the best way to picture it in modern terms is it looked to John like a diamond. A brilliant diamond, 1,500 miles tall, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, this square, luminescent diamond coming out of heaven toward the new earth. As we'll see, that was the description. That was what John is seeing. Also, she had great and a high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Now, Middle Eastern cities in ancient times had gates for protection. 
You say, well, why is there a wall around the New Jerusalem? We don't need protection. Correct. Good observation. It's because the construction of the walls will be reminiscent of the way the children of Israel camped around the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where you had three tribes on each side in a four-square environment so that you had 12 tribes around the very center, which was the tabernacle itself. And since you have the gates with the names of the 12 tribes, that speaks of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant with the Jews as he restores the land, restores the Jewish people during the tribulation. 144,000 are sealed at the witness of the two witnesses. And uh, all Israel, as Paul said in Romans 9 through 11, will be saved. Then you have the 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles. So it speaks of God's promise to keep the old covenant with Israel and the new covenant with anyone who believes in Christ. Now, there's angels at the gates, not to guard the city. But probably just to be greeters, ushers, because it would seem that you're not going to spend all of your time in the city of Jerusalem, this new and glorious city that you'll be traveling because there is not just the city of Jerusalem, but the new earth after the millennium. Now, this is the eternal state and that you'll be able to travel from the city going out of the city. And the angel will just say, have a good day. And when you come home, the angel will say, welcome home. Glad you're back. You know, it says in Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those of us who are heirs of salvation. And it would seem that their ministry to us, the redeemed, continues even in this eternal city of Jerusalem. So different from the one Nehemiah had to get people to live in. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, verse 13, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now, try to picture this in your mind if you can. Think multidimensionally. We're not going to be talking about the Jerusalem that was a 1,000 acres on an escarpment plateau in the Judean mountains. We're talking about something that is a tetragonal city, four square, a cube. Let's look at it. He's going to measure it. Verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length and breadth and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 140 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angelos, an angel, a messenger, and the construction of it was of jasper, like diamond, iridescent. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. One furlong is 600 feet. So the measurement is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall, and at least 1,500 miles deep. Some see it more as a triangle or a pyramid. I see it as a cube. I'm comfortable with that uh, kind of dimension. Uh, that, by the way, is roughly the distance from Maine to Florida, 1,500 miles. So picture the distance from Maine to Florida. That's what you're looking at, cube coming out of heaven. Wild, huh? Clear as crystal, like a diamond. Um, Henry Morris wrote a little commentary on this, and he said, uh, 
20 billion people could easily live within this city. Now, 20 billion, think of all of the people on planet Earth right now, hasn't even reached 8 billion. 20 billion people could easily live there. And if 25% of the city was used for housing and the rest for parks, public buildings, etc., each person could have a cubicle block with 75 acres on each face to call their own. So obviously there's going to be plenty of room for all the people who are going to be there uh, don't think it's going to be a crowded city. And by the way, you're not going to be spending all your time there. You're going to be moving. And from the description of this city through the rest of this chapter, it would seem as though the streets are not just a singular dimension where you'll travel horizontally, but the ability to travel vertically and horizontally. Cool, huh? Sounds like a great place. Very different from Nehemiah's Jerusalem. So this huge, huge 2,250,000 square mile cube, roughly the size of the moon, but now in a cube coming out of heaven. Welcome to your future. Jerusalem, the center of God's plan, the geographic center of the world biblically, the salvation center of the world spiritually, the storm center of the world prophetically, but as we read, the glory center of the world, ultimately. Let's pray. Lord, we have been taken from earth to heaven tonight. From a dusty outpost in the Judean backwater during the time of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, during a very difficult time when people were wondering, maybe it's over. Maybe the history and thus the legacy of the city of Jerusalem has come to an end. But there was a man who was moved by God to return to the land of his fathers and to be involved in rebuilding a city that was broken down, whose gates and walls had been destroyed by fire, who inspired men and women to build and then invested in them personally thanking those who would volunteer and would lead in that effort. Lord, we've been taken from there to see a very real piece of the future. Not only Israel restored in the kingdom age, but beyond that, in the eternal state, after the thousand-year reign, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven to the earth. We're going to be there. We're going to hang out there. We're going to go to and fro from there. So we understand that heaven is in a place of rest. It's a place of activity. And it sounds like a place of great fun. So, Lord, if any of us have that old picture of sitting around a cloud playing a harp, I pray that forever that would be banished. And we might just imagine what it's going to be like to take a day trip with Abraham or Isaac or Joseph or Peter or Paul. And to see face to face the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. Lord, when we see what you have made in six days, and you said it was good. And then we read this description. And we recall that our Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
oh, what that will be like. And so, Lord, as we often sing, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Stamp our eyes with eternity on it, Lord, and help us live in that way. We ask in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen.